Well, there is power in love. That sound familiar? If it didn't or doesn't, you may not be connected to social media, to the news, or to any other form of broadcast, because that was a part of the message yesterday morning, I think here at four o'clock in the morning in the royal wedding, by Bishop Michael uh, Bruce Curry. His message was, there is power in love. You know, it's interesting if you had a chance to, uh, to catch that or to see any of the uh, footage that came after it, how many people react when they hear, hey, when they hear the gospel in church? Many people are reacting in a negative way simply because Jesus Christ was proclaimed in a church in a setting that they did not anticipate hearing about the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to be honest, I was one of those who did not anticipate hearing the gospel at a royal wedding. And that's kind of a state of where we are in our country, across the world, that often in churches today, you do not hear the gospel. And sometimes even when you hear the name of God, you do not hear the name of Jesus, which Jesus is what makes us Christians. We're followers of Jesus Christ. But I loved his message, there is power in love. And one of the quotes I want to share with you today that he, uh, he said is that Jesus did not get an honorary doctorate for dying. He wasn't getting anything out of it. He gave up his life. He sacrificed his life for the good of others for the well-being of the world, for us. That is what love is. Because love can be sacrificial and in doing so become redemptive. In that way of unselfish, sacrificial, redemptive love, that kind of love changes lives. You know, what uh, the bishop shared at that royal wedding is this idea that when God has given something to us, he wants to work through us. That when God has given something to us like love, that the way that Christ has loved us, we are therefore to love one another. And in the passage we read this morning, what Paul is doing is he's writing to the Corinthian church. And he's reminding them of this Macedonian church and the, the grace that was uh, seen in their lives as they gave generously. But he was also reminding the Corinthians of this promise that they had made. You see, the Corinthian church had some resources, and they made a promise to give to this poor Macedonian church. And see, Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 to remind them of the gift and the promise of that gift that they had promised to make about a year back. And in some ways, he's wondering, you know, are they going to follow through? Here was this promise that you made to give generously to some poor believers in Macedonia, and now Paul's writing and saying, are you still committed to that path? Because I think sometimes we make commitments. We say, hey, this is something I'm going to do. This is something I value, but we don't follow through. Now, the question is, why is that? Why are promises easy but following through hard? Well, Jesus had something to say about that in Matthew chapter 6. He said, you ready? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That often we make promises about things that we really don't value. See, the reason we follow through on our promises is because we treasure them. 
And when you treasure something, your life is going to move in that direction. And Jesus is saying in some ways as a tool, a reference to kind of check our lives to say if we treasure, if we say we treasure God, if we value the gospel, if we value being followers of Jesus Christ, let's go and look at our treasures. Let's look at the things that we value, whether it's our time or our talents or our income, and ask the question, what would they say about the things that I value? What is my time and my sacrifice? If I just kind of took some time and looked at my life and evaluated my life, could anyone accuse me of loving God? Are you with me on that? Could anyone accuse me when they look at my bank account of having a passion for the kingdom of God? And maybe on the other side, it's helpful to look at those things and say, you know, what do I really value? Because I think in some ways we can deceive ourselves in thinking that I value one thing, but I realize that over time, and if there's not people in your life, and certainly in the financial side, I imagine there's not many people looking at your numbers, maybe just one or two that you've paid to kind of look at those numbers. But you know, when you look at those things, what do they really say about us? Well, often we need people from the outside looking in. And when it comes to finances, we're so private. Even inside the church, which we should have some transparency, both from a church, but from a standpoint of each one of us not having the fear and not feeling as if someone's going to push me to do something I don't want to do, but rather to allow people to look into those things because, see, I want my whole life devoted to Jesus. Not just what you guys can see, because Jesus said, if my treasure is in the kingdom of God, everything else is going to follow. And so if that's true, listen, if that's true, then, then I want people that I can trust asking me questions about those areas that for us as Americans is so private, right? It seems even wrong to suggest that someone else could look into those things and evaluate. We, we say no, right? We say no. Well, why is that? Well, I want to jump in this passage today and show us a couple of things. First of all, we're going to discover uh, that God, and if, if you don't know this, he owns everything. That's kind of the, the role of a creator. When you create something, you have dominion, you have, you have rule, you're sovereign. So God owns everything. And see, we, we are not owners. As much as we want to be owners, we are not owners. We are caretakers. We're stewards. And see, God's design for us is to give generously in a way that reflects the God who's given to us. We are to give in a way that reflects the generosity of the God we serve, that we should be a kind of community, a kind of, as Jesus said, a city on a hill. We're a city inside a city, which means that we do money, we do relationships, we do everything in a way that reflects God's values and God's commitments. And so first of all, uh, God's created everything. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 24, he captures it this way. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those that dwell within. So the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, as well as everyone that dwells within, which means simply God owns everything. And so when you go to the book of Genesis, go to the beginning of things, what you discover is God created man and woman and he created man and woman in his image, which means to reflect his likeness. Now, to reflect his likeness, not just in what we look like, but really in what we desire, 
that we would reflect God's desires when it comes to his stuff. Now, you may have someone in your life that does that for you. They reflect your desires when it comes to your stuff and your finances. They're called a financial planner or maybe a financial advisor. Could you imagine your financial advisor coming to you and saying, hey, listen, I know what your plans are, but here's what I did. Hey, I know what you wanted to do. I know when you wanted to retire. I know where you wanted to invest, but I didn't do any of that. You see, I I started to express my desires with your stuff. You okay with that? Right? We'd all be fine, right? We wouldn't be looking for someone else to help us. Because see, when you give your stuff to someone, you expect them to use their desires, right? Of course not. If it's yours and you entrust it to someone, you expect them to use those resources in a way that reflects your desires. Well, if you have that standard, why do we suddenly stop when it comes to God's things? Why do we say, God, this is mine? You know why? Because that's what the Bible calls sin. The Bible calls sin, meaning that which taking ownership over that which is not yours. And here's the big idea. You are not yours. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. That's a little too personal. But, but Paul said, you've been redeemed, so honor God with your body. Everything belongs to him. And so what we see from the beginning is that that we have this tendency within us to want to hold on to things and to associate our identity, meaning my self-worth and my value with what I have or what I own or what I do, instead of associating my value with who God is and what he's done for me, instead of associating, realize this, my value with an experience of God's generosity. Because see, Christians are to to be those who live out their love for God out of this experience of the generosity of God. And see, what that is is called the gospel. See, in the gospel, in the person of Jesus, we see God's lavish generosity towards us, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, the story of Christianity does not begin with a command to give. See, Christianity begins with God gave. And until we are satisfied and see the fullness of what God gave, we really cannot give. Are you with me on that? I know it's a lot of give and gave. But until we see the magnitude of what God gave, you know, Ryan's exactly right. If you're visiting, don't give. Christianity begins with God gave. And until you see what God gave, we can't even begin to give. And we'll talk about why that's true, but see, God is the owner of all things. We are not to take ownership over that which belongs to him. You know, in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, it says this, describing what happened when Adam and Eve became owners over creation. It says they, meaning us, We exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and we worshiped and served the creature, or you could say the creation rather than the creator. We took the material and made it eternal. We set our heart on that which cannot fill the human heart, which is the temporal things of life. And he says, because of that, we have fallen into a lie and worshiped the wrong things. You know, there's a great story if you read the end of uh, Luke chapter 15, one of my 
I think, favorite stories in uh, the Gospels. It tells this story of a father and his two sons. Now, it's typically known as the story of the prodigal son, but I think in many ways it should be told as the story of the prodigal sons because there's not one lost son. There's actually two lost sons. kind of gets missed every once in a while. But see, in that story, there's a, a son that wants to be an owner. He doesn't want to be a caretaker. He doesn't want to be a steward. You see, his father, as long as his father is alive, he has to serve under his father's desires. He has to work on the estate in a way that honors the father. He has to use his resources in a way that points back to the landowner, to the one who has the honor and the dignity in that culture. But see, he didn't want that anymore, so what he did is he went to his father and said, Dad, I wish you were dead. Now, that's the, my translation. What he said was, give me my inheritance, which in that culture is the greatest of offense, and even in our culture is a tremendous offense. It means, Dad, I want you dead. I'd rather have your money than have you. The idea is, I don't want to live under your authority. I don't want to do with this stuff what you want me to do. I want to do with it what I want to do. And so he did, and I think his story may match some of our stories. You know, what he did is he went off and lived for pleasure. He turned on the television, saw what other people were living for, and it looked good. And so he went and tried it. He got drunk. He found a lot of people who would spend time with him. He had resources. He was throwing those resources out, and he lived this lavish life. But then he realized that it wasn't satisfying his needs. Actually, he was destroying his life. And as he looked around himself, he realized that he was now in a place he didn't intend to be, which means I'm lost. And I think sometimes financially we find ourselves there. We find ourselves financially lost because we didn't make a plan in terms of where we intended to be. And if you're someplace you didn't intend to be, by definition, you are, you're lost. Well, he was lost. And what came to his mind was the goodness of his father. That's the interesting idea in this passage. He goes, I remember how good it was with God. I remember how good it was with my father. I'm going to go back. And then he makes up this story. And maybe you've done this with your dad, right? Before you go home, you've got this whole thing you're going to get into and say, hey, father, just make me one of your servants. I'll mow the grass. I'll paint the fence. I'll paint the house. Do whatever it takes just to, just to get back in the house. Now, if you read this story, the beauty of that is as he's coming back, you know, rehearsing this narrative, the father sees him. Sees him way off in the distance, right? You know, just sees him on the horizon, probably can see the gate of his walk. And what does he do? He runs to him. Doesn't even let his son get the story out. Doesn't allow him to give him his speech. Instead, he puts the robe on his shoulders. The robe is of, of the father's identity, the ring that he wore that he would use to seal documents. He places that on his son's ring. And here's the scandalous picture of grace. He once again made him an heir of his kingdom. That here is somebody that squandered the father's wealth went off and used it for whatever he wanted to. He comes back, and the father doesn't just welcome him back as a servant. He reestablishes him as a son, which means he's once again a steward over everything the father has. See, that's grace, because that's what God's done for us. That's what he's done for us in the way that we've lived our lives. We went out and did it our way. And what did the father do? 
before we could get the speech out, before we could tell him what we're going to do to earn his love, he lavished generously his love on our lives, reestablished us as his children, and began to reparent us through generosity. That's the gospel. And see, that's how God saved us, that we blew it. We were bankrupt, and yet he, out of our bankruptcy, pours out his generosity so that we might express that generosity to others. You know what that is? That's a gospel. It's good news. I don't know about you, but I love stories where you see generosity overflowing to the lives of others. I think one of my favorite stories of that picture of generosity is a Christmas carol. You know, I could watch the last 10 minutes of the Christmas carol over and over and over, you know, just kind of waiting. I can't wait till I get to that point where he sees the little boy and asks about that, what was that, turkey in the window or whatever it was. You love to see that generosity. Now, why was he generous? Because he had an experience of generosity. He saw himself. He realized what he deserved. And then his generosity didn't flow out of a law. It didn't flow out of a command to give. It, it came out of what someone gave. He had an experience of generosity that then empowered him to be generous to others. And see, as we get in this text, that's what Paul's describing. He's saying to the Macedonian church, Jesus was rich. And I love how he uses that language in, in terms of giving, but uses it metaphorically. Of course, he was wealthy. He was financially rich, but he's saying he's rich in that he was God, that he was with the Father. He had the angels, heavenly hosts, whatever that looks like, it's a pretty good day. All of those things. And yet, for your sake, he became poor so that you in your poverty might become rich. See, jump in with me back in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. And again, Paul's reminding the Corinthian church as to why they made this promise to give. And he says, I say this not as a command, verse 8, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. He's saying that our love can be seen in what we do. That as Jesus says, where your treasure is, your life is going to follow. Likewise, he's saying, by this act of giving, we see the generosity, we see the genuineness of your love. Verse nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what kind of grace? He explains, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment to this benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also desire to do it. Think about the motivation that Paul's using. Do you see any guilt? Do you see any shame? See, Paul doesn't use guilt or shame. Often when you go... Uh, to a, a situation where some, you know someone's going to ask you to give, what they do is they, they pull on the human emotions, right? It's easy to use guilt. Hey, look at what you have. Look at what they don't have. You know, and that's one way to get people to give, but it's not a way to get someone to become generous. Guilt does not create generosity. Neither does shame. What creates generosity is generosity. 
See, until I see an act of generosity that overwhelms me, that's scandalous, now I see how generous someone can be. And see, we know this in life because if you've played athletics of any kind, when you play with someone better than you, you realize, wow, you can play better than me. You realize what someone can do. And when you see what they can do, you now see an opportunity to begin to do that because now it's that it's opened up. Well, likewise with God, when you see his generosity and you have that experience of generosity, you start to ask the question, well, what would that look like in my life? And Paul's reminding them of God's grace because it's God's grace that leads us to be obedient to his commands. He's reminding them of what Jesus has done. And so if you jump back again in verse one, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the Macedonian churches. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, meaning this church was poor, and yet because of the experience of grace, they gave lavishly. Verse three, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and notice what he says, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I have to be honest here as a pastor. I've never begged to give earnestly. I've never said to someone here, no, really, I need to give you more. No, 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 that's not enough. Let me give you more. No, here's more that I want to give to you. He's describing not one person, but a whole church. What it sounds like is like the story of Zacchaeus. Remember old Zacchaeus, that wee little man was he, climbed up in that sycamore tree. See what he could see. What happened? What did he do? I, I don't want to pay back just what I owe. I, I want to pay back 40, 50, 60 percent, what 80 percent, whatever it takes, not because he's under a command. What was Zacchaeus under? He was walking in grace. He's like, look at what someone did for me. Look at what God's done for me. Just like Ebenezer Scrooge, it's not a command to give. And it's, it's an expression of love. It's a joy. And it says in the text, he says, out of their abundant joy, and yet, notice the contrast, extreme poverty. Not, not poverty, but ex- we want to make sure we understand this is extreme poverty. They give, they gave. How could we do that? Because sometimes, I'll, I'll be honest, I, there's times where I give and I don't give out of joy. I give because I think I have to. Well, as Paul's going to say, God loves a cheerful giver. That when it comes to finances, the issue is not just your bank account. What the gospel gets at and what Jesus gets at is it's, it's, a, it's a heart issue. It's about what we love. And in some ways, it's that place where all of us can look at in, in the private place of our own home and say, you know, does my life really line up with what I say I believe? Because if God has poured out that kind of generosity to me, I need to see a little bit of that in my life, right? I mean, if I really believe that God's poured out that much, an ocean of generosity, I need to see some thimbles of that generosity flowing out of my life to others. Now, here's the question, you know, what does that look like? 
Now, what does it look like for us to give in a way that, that mirrors what Jesus has given? Because if you think about it, why did Jesus go to the cross? You know, who caused the problem? Who was at fault? Who wasted their resources? Who messed things up? Who got themselves in bankruptcy? How often do we say, I'm not going to give? Look at what they did to get them themselves there. I'm not going to help them. I don't think they're going to use those resources right. And so I'm not going to give because, see, I can't trust that person to use the resources right. Therefore, I don't, I'm not going to give. You know what that is? That's a man's way of justifying when I will give and when I will not give. You know what it doesn't take into account? Grace. Because when God gave to us, he knew when he gave Jesus Christ to me and called me to be a pastor, he knew I was going to be a terrible husband for at least 10 years. And I mean terrible husband. My wife is kind to me. My first 10 years of marriage, my wife should have left me. I was a terrible husband. I used words to tear down. Maybe you grew up in a family like that. I grew up in a family and often words flew, right? It was like just across the room, words would fly. And they had no meaning in our family because they were just common. And so you'd cut people down. Well, when I stepped into this new world and my wife's heart, I found that that's not how everyone works, that words cut, words kill, words destroy. And I realized over time that words had destroyed me. But it was her generosity. I can praise my wife. She's not here today. I can praise my wife. It was her generosity, I'll tell you, that changed my marriage. It was her generosity showing me, even as a pastor, how self-righteous I was, how little I trusted in the grace of God that I would never get up and admit I was a terrible husband. Because I thought if I did, then no one would come the next week. Because the only reason people come is because you're perfect. <laughs> but that's how we think. What would it look like to give in a way that God's given to us? What it would look like is a totally different kind of kingdom. It may start to look like the kingdom of God, where we do money in a way that doesn't look like the rest of the, rest of the world where we honor people in a way and we give in a way not as much concern, listen, about what they're going to do with it, but what if we were more concerned about what it says about God, about what our giving says about our Creator, and what our giving says about what He's done for us. See, in the New Testament, that's the direction it's always going to. It's, it's not focusing so much on what that person's going to do, but rather what does your resources say about who God is? And what is it saying to the world about God's generosity towards us? You know, I love, and just quickly we'll, we'll touch on this, I love in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses, uh, verse 6 and following, he's, he go, he's going back to this theme of what this Macedonian church had done and how this church in Corinth was putting on the brakes in giving. And he says to them in, in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give, and notice the language, as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver because a cheerful giver gets it. Giving out of compulsion is giving out under the law. 
It's not giving out under grace. It's saying, I have to do this. Well, here's the challenge. You know, often when we give to God, in churches, we're just giving to ourselves. Often when we give to God, I'll tell you why, it's called prosperity theology. It's this errant idea, if I give to God, I'm going to get. But see, you know what that does in that moment? What you've done is put give in front of gave. And what you have is no longer Christianity. You have some other form of religion. Because Christianity is always God gave and therefore I give. And so why do we give? Because God gave. And see, when we give, what we're doing is we're recognizing when I give, I'm not giving to get anything from God. I already have God. And if I have God, I've got, I've got everything. I want to encourage you uh, to read Ephesians chapter 1 and just notice the language of Ephesians 1 where he talks about how God lavished his grace, lavished his love, made us the children of God, blessed us, listen to this, ready? In the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I can't get my mind around that. I don't know what that means, but it means a lot. God has poured out his love in our lives. Why? So that we might reflect his love in the way that we live our lives. How are we doing? I need God's grace. I need God's grace in the area of giving. You know, I, I grew up in a, a church, an environment where you drew the line right at 10%. Always a hard line right there at that 10%. You kind of knew what you're going to give, and then you, you measured it out, right? And some of you came from different backgrounds, so don't feel that as a, a command. What is the principle that the New Testament gives? It's really interesting. Jesus only mentions tithing once. And really, in the New Testament, it's not mentioned. And the reason, the reasons it's not mentioned is the principle of giving in the New Testament is called generosity. It's generosity. It doesn't mean that the Old Testament standard is somehow dead that we ignore. What it means is if we go to the Father and say, Father, under the Old Covenant, we gave 10%. Well, under a more lavish, grace-filled covenant, what should I give? And then you allow the Father to convict you. You know, in the Old Testament, there were some principles, the principle of margin, the principle of first fruits. Margin was you always left some extra for someone to come along and take. And the principle of first fruits was when the first of the harvest came in, guess what you did with it? You gave it all away. Now, how do you know there isn't going to be hail? How do you know there isn't going to be a drought? The reality is you just don't know. But what it did, when you gave your first, it forced you to trust God. And so when it comes to the grace of giving, and notice he calls giving a grace. Grow in the grace of giving by growing in the grace of God. You know, on that card that we gave out, there is a place you could sign that just says, you know, I want to grow in the grace of giving. Now, I'd love for you to fill that out if that's where you are. It doesn't say we're not going to be looking at how you give from this point forward and judging, did they give own the grace of giving or not? No, our goal is to pray over you and to pray that God's grace would so overwhelm your life that his generosity would pour forth through your generosity to others. 
And then second, there's another card that you have there that you can either take home, you can fill out and place that someplace that you'll see on a regular basis to remind yourself, or also you can turn that in and don't sign your name because we don't want to associate your name with that amount. And again, we want to pray over you and pray over that commitment and pray that God's grace would overwhelm us. And beyond that, as we kind of conclude this series, there's other cards are still there for you. You know, we'd love for you today if you'd fill out that car on prayer. And if you want to grow in the, the, that exercising of prayer, we want to invest into you as well. There's also that serve card. So take this opportunity to fill those out, turn them in, and we're going to follow up with you in the coming weeks so that together as the body of Christ, we can be his reflection, his grace, his love to a community that desperately needs to know that God is generous, God is loving. And God can meet the deepest need of our heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for that, that truth that where my treasure is, everything else is going to go downhill. It's going to follow. It's going to chase. And so I look at my life, Lord, and I just confess in front of everyone how selfish I can be. Selfish with my time and resources. Lord, selfish in even the choices I make and where I give. Instead of saying, Lord, um, Release me from the fear. Release me from thinking I have to do it one way, or, but instead, Lord, allow your grace to teach me, to disciple us, and to look at our lives honestly and say, what do I treasure too much that's taking too much of my time? Lord, would you guide us in this so that you would be magnified and we could say, just like they said yesterday, that, that love transforms and we see it happening here. Thank you, Father, for that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.